0: I'm going to try and use this this microphone just so that everyone can can hear me um, properly. Um, Can everyone hear me okay in the hall so far? That's excellent, it's a very good start. Um, So my name is Michael Turwey, I'm Head of Collections and Exhibitions at the National Science and Media Museum in Bradford. Um, You may know us under one of our previous names as being either the National Media Museum, the National Museum of Photography, Film and Television, or any number of different variations on Bradford, Media, Museum, (laughs) Media Center, whatever. That's what we are and that's where I work. So, a hundred years or so ago, um, two young women created a series of photographs that I have shown behind me that became one of the most famous supernatural hoaxes of the 20th century. Um, So these images, apparently of themselves, with a variety of fairies, gnomes and elves in a wooded dell at the bottom of their garden, travelled around the world and convinced many people of their authenticity. It was only 66 years later um, that the women admitted that they faked the images using nothing more complicated than hand-drawn fairies stuck on hatpins into the summer grass and photographed using a basic manual hand camera. Um, So my job at the museum is I'm a curator, so I tell stories with objects primarily. So this evening I'm going to use um, a series of objects um, as way markers um, through the story. Um, Since the publication of the photographs in 1920, a quite extraordinary quantity of print has been generated by these photographs um, and the the actions of Elsie Wright and Frances Griffiths. um, And also a rich and colourful cast of supporting characters um, around the girls. Um, but by returning to the evidence, many of which, um, many of these things are in the collection of my museum, um, I hope to be able to kind of keep on, on track and offer a kind of reasonably objective account of what happened and how the photographs themselves were made um, and what we could make of them. Um, so all good stories start with a storybook, um, and ours begins here. This is the Princess Mary's Gift Book. Um, published at the very start of the First World War in August 1914 to raise money for initiatives that brought women into industries that supported the war effort. Um, the book contains stories, poems, drawings um, by the most illustrious writers and artists of Edwardian Britain. J.M. Um, Barry, um, the creator of Peter Pan and obviously himself, No Stranger to Fairies, contributed this um, story, A Holiday in Bed. Um, Rudyard Kipling uh, contributed a a poem, which I'll speak more about in a moment, Um, and the playwright and pacifist Alfred Noyes offered another short poem, illustrated by this rather lovely color plate, um, and a number of other line drawings by the artist Claude Sheppardson, and his poem was entitled A Spell for a Fairy. This version of the book, which is held in in my collection, um, is not actually unique, I'm sorry to say. Um, Many were printed, um, and if you're interested, you can probably pick up a good first edition like this for about 20 quid on eight books. Um, It would have been present in many households with children in 1917. And we know for a fact that a copy was given to a seven-year-old Francis Griffiths, then living in Cape Town in 1915. Two years later, that copy of the book made the journey with Francis, Um, from South Africa to England, um, and she remembered it in later life as being one of her most treasured possessions. She particularly remembered the Kipling poem, Big Steamers, um, and the drawings that accompanied it by Norman Wilkinson, like this this rather rather lovely colour plate. Um, I want to take a moment to explore why that particular story um, and this particular poem stuck in her mind um, 60 years later, because I think it helps us to understand maybe a little bit of the context and the mental world of of nine-year-old Francis. The poem itself was written in 1911, so predates the war. Um, and the poem is a dialogue between a child and all the big steamers, um, in other words, the ships of the British Merchant Navy. Um, the ships explain to the child their role in keeping Britain fed. We're going to fetch you your bread and your butter, your beef, pork, and mutton, eggs, apples, and cheese. Um, So we know that from the picnics in Eden Blyton, Bun Loaf in Arthur Ransom, Swallows and Amazons, um, to the extraordinary feasts at J.K. Rowling's Hogwarts, that food is terribly important in children's literature as a source of sensual pleasure and of comfort. This poem also evokes the geographical reach of the Edwardian British Empire. We fetch it from Melbourne, Quebec and Vancouver, address us at Hobart, Hong Kong and Bombay. So for a child like Frances, who was brought up in South Africa, which itself was the hub of the sea routes to Australia and across the Southern Hemisphere, um, these would have, names of these colonial places would, not have, would have been familiar as they would have been to her cousin, Elsie Wright, who herself had spent time in Canada as a child. So these are two young women whose worlds extend far beyond um, the village in, in West Yorkshire. But at the heart of the poem is actually a very political message in support of a strong navy to protect these maritime networks. It ends with the very ominous lines extorting the child to, Send out your big warships to watch your big waters, That no one may stop us from bringing you food. And it ends with a rather clear threat, For the bread that you eat and the biscuits you nibble, The sweets that you suck and the joints that you carve, Are brought to you daily by all us big steamers, And if anyone hinders our coming, you'll starve. Um, And let's remind ourselves that in Britain in the spring of 1917, very nearly did starve. Having temporarily suspended u boat campaigning um, in 1916, Germany resumed it um, in February 1917. Um, At the very time that Francis was on a ship sailing from Cape Town to Plymouth, the German Navy was sinking an average of 13 British vessels every single day. The very ship that she sailed on, the Galway Castle, was itself torpedoed in September um, 1918, with the loss of nearly 150 lives. By the summer of 1917, as these photographs were being made, Britain had about six weeks of food left. And at one point, only four days of sugar supplies remained in the country. So long queues in shops, and there were rising prices. So we don't know how much of this danger Francis understood at the time, but her parents certainly would have known the risks they were taking, and the stress would no doubt have been visible to her, I think. So we should think of the journey that Francis made that spring as a traumatic and hazardous one, with her world changing dramatically from the sun and heat of South Africa to this small village in the rural rural west West Riding of Yorkshire, in the midst of a bitter war, um, Frances came to a very cold country. The snowbound towns that she encountered um, were already scarred by the conflict, then approaching its third year. Bradford had been traumatized by the decimation of the Powell's Battalion from Bradford on the first day of the Battle of the Somme in 1916. Um, and in August 1916, um, a fire at the ammunition factory at Low Moor near Bradford um, got completely out of control and the plant was destroyed in a series of very um, large explosions that killed 34 people and injured another 60. In Cottingley, um, Frances and her mother Annie lived in this small terraced house with her aunt and uncle Arthur and Polly Wright and her 15-year-old cousin Elsie. It's the end terrace, it's the one on the the right-hand side of this photograph. Um, Elsie and Francis shared a bedroom at the back of the house, which overlooked the beck. There was no curtain on the window of the bedroom, and Frances later remembered that the window frightened me to death at night, a blank, shiny piece of black glass with nothing beyond but the roaring of water. Francis's father, Edwin, was a career officer in the Royal Artillery, and he'd been a veteran of the Boer War, and in 1917 he was serving in France in a war that was very different from the one he'd fought in South Africa. Francis began attending Bingley Grammar School, which is a couple of miles away from Cottingley, Um, and she described herself later again as a stranger wearing strange clothes and speaking in my Cockney South African accent. Elsie, on the other hand, had left school at 13, so two years before 1917, um, and worked in Bradford at a photography studio where one of her jobs was fixing defects in photographic plates. That winter was remembered as being terribly dark and cold for Frances, not surprisingly, um, as she acclimatized to the north of England. Um, But in the early summer, uh, we understand the girl started to go down to the bottom of the garden where there was a beck um, and play down there more regularly. So, my second object is this camera also in the collection of the museum in Bradford. Um, So, cameras like this uh, were made in Dresden in Germany um, for the British company Butcher & Sons who then sold them in the UK from around 1905 under the label The Midge. This is an industrial product assembled in the factory from components made elsewhere by other manufacturers. A variety of different sorts of this camera were available with different specifications of lens and different attachments. The unprepossessing appearance of the midge belies the importance of cameras like this in the development of photography as a mass phenomenon at the end of the 19th and start of the 20th centuries. Early photography, let's remember, was a very complicated, highly involved, and very technical pursuit. There were plenty of amateur photographers around in the middle of the 19th century, but the equipment and expertise required to make photographs at the time limited to ph- photography to a rather small and rather wealthy group of generally um, men. However, a series of developments in technology at the end of the 19th century reduced the complexity of making photographs and the cost of making photographs and enabled a very many more people to take them up. And cameras like the Midge um, came onto the market to, increase, to, to meet that increasing demand for photographic equipment. But it's important to remember, this does not mean that photography was transformed overnight into the hyper-simple, frictionless process that we know today from using our smartphones. To take a picture with the Midge, You still need to know uh, more than a passing acquaintance with the technical processes and science of photography. Um, The lens itself is fixed, but there's a rotating mechanism that allows for three other supplementary lenses to be used and to slot into place. Um, But you need to know how far away your subject is, and you have to be fairly confident that it's going to stay there, otherwise whatever photographs you make are not going to come out very well. You also need to assess the light conditions. Um, in order to sort of change the aperture and speed of the shutter. Um, And this is all all the more complicated if your subject isn't stationary, but is, for example, a small, rapidly moving creature. Um, And then you need to be able to judge the speed and direction they're moving in quite carefully, again, if you want to make a very good photograph using cameras like this. Then you need to worry about the medium that the photograph is being made onto. The midge takes images on 8 by 10 centimetre glass plates. It's known as quarter plates. Um, There's a magazine at the back of the camera into which they slot, um, and they've been already sort of covered with a photographic emulsion, so you just need to expose them to the light. Um, You would also, though, if you wanted to kind of then do something with these negatives, um, have... chemicals, papers, and a certain amount of level of technical expertise to be able to then make photographic prints from this. So this is from a box of the chemicals that you would have need to expose them. Um, And just from the kind of the ingredient list and some of the instructions there, you can see this isn't something that you undertake um, lightly. So this camera, belonged to Arthur Wright, who was Elsie's father and Francis's uncle. So he was quite a practical man. He'd worked as an engineer in textile mills um, and he was employed in 1917 as a chauffeur and handyman at the estate um, in Cottingley Hall. Um, it was this camera that Elsie and Francis borrowed in July 1917, loaded on that first day with a single plate in the back um, and they went down to the garden with the intention of photographing the fairies that they, um, they said were, they were playing with down there um, next to the beck. Um, Of course, as they later said, they also had with them six-inch hat pins from Woolworths, cut-out copies of the fairies copied from the Princess Mary gift book, and some gum to fix one from the other, and I think a lot of creative ideas to play with down there for their summer project. Um, So this is the result. Um, This is actually quite a bad reproduction of it, but it's of a small, faded, and quite creased photographic print. You can see that it's in quite poor condition. It bears the marks of years of, I think, being passed from hand to hand, being lifted to the eye for close inspection and probably tipped in the palm so the light would strike it at such an angle that the fading image would become more clear and more detail would be imparted to the viewer. So, this image is quite hard to make out, but we can recognize it in this room as being the first of the Cottingley Fairies photographs, which shows Frances in the center with fairies dancing in front of her in the foreground. But from this print, you can see that it's quite difficult to make out the detail. Um, it's a contact print, so the original artifact would have been um, sort of less than eight centimeters wide. Um, and it's made by direct physical contact between the glass negative and the, the, um, the paper. Um, It was developed by Arthur Wright um, in the larger of their house where he'd set up a rudimentary darkroom. Um, To Arthur, when he first saw the the negative um, exposed, it was pretty clear to him that this picture was of his niece surrounded by discarded waste paper. He thought they were sandwich wrappers. Um, (laughs) But other people in the household thought differently. um, And um, for them, the the picture showed that Elsie and Francis had been telling the truth. Um, At the beck, there were living creatures. There were fairies. And later on in that summer, um, Elsie and Francis created another photograph. This is a much later version of it. The the original that they would have seen at the time would have been of a similar kind of quality to the first one. Um, But this one um, shows um, Elsie, the older girl, posing with a winged creature in a conical hat that they describe as a gnome. And I think at this point, the kind of the story becomes quite well established within the family um, folklore and the family um, stories. So photography is slippery. It manages to both be a scientific technology for systematically recording our visual world, but also a set of creative processes and tools for constructing images. Writing about the Edwardian craze for for photographing spirits and apparitions that many people will be familiar with, the historian John Harvey puts it neatly that, the coming together of photography and the spirit allied modern technology to ancient belief. They also united two expressions of faith, one in the existence of invisible realities The other, in the camera's indifferent eye and unerring ability to arrest the truth. So, the photography is also an article of faith that it does that. So, in this case, the photograph is real in one sense, in that the image that's captured on the glass negative has not been enhanced and manipulated very much at this point. Yet in the other, the photograph is fake, in that the truth it asserts is itself a performance for the benefit of the camera. So in 1917, the story of the girls and the fairies became one of those family stories that gets told over and over again to great embarrassment of the, of the subjects, no doubt. Um, Arthur did not again lend them the camera to muck about with, um, and would that would probably have been that, except at the end of the war, Wright began to take an interest in the teachings of a religious group called the Theosophical Society, At one of their regular Wednesday evening meetings held um, here at a hall that still stands in Bradford at Unity Hall, Polly heard a speaker talk about fairy life, Um, and at the end of the meeting um, she approached him, as all proud parents would do, um, and told him about her daughter and how she had been able to capture photographs of the fairies themselves um, outside the beck. So Polly found a willing audience in the Bradford Theosophical Society, and within months, networks of correspondence had been established between the leading figures of the movement in London and the family in Yorkshire. So the practical joke or the experiment at this point escapes the lab. Our next photo- object is another camera, but this one looks quite unlike the midge. So it's not a boring box, but quite an interesting-looking piece of equipment with an extending leather bellows, shiny metallic features, Um, and fixings for a strap to allow the camera to be worn around the neck. This looks more like the way we expect cameras to look, um, technical and expensive, and an instrument of precision and and not a toy. But looks can be somewhat deceptive, and this camera, which is a Mark III cameo, has actually quite a lot in common with the midge that we saw earlier. Firstly, it was probably made in the same factory in Dresden um, by the same manufacturer as the midge, and was sold in the UK again by butchers and sons. Again, it's a quarter plate camera, so it makes photographs on the same same medium. Um, Although this one is without the multi-plate magazine at the back and just takes a single plate at a time. Again, it has manual controls for focal length, aperture and shutter speed. And while it is undoubtedly a better camera, and with its folding bellows and its neck neck strap, more convenient and portable, so much more suited for making photographs in field conditions, it requires practically the same level of photographic knowledge as the midge does. So this is one of the two cameras that were sent to Elsie and Francis. This one that's in our museum is the one that um, sort of was owned by um, Elsie. Um, It was sent to them on the expectation that they would make more photographs using this this much more scientific-looking tool. Um, So this, we must remember, is three years after the first photographs were were made. Um, And three years is a long time in the lives of children. By 1920, the war was over, Francis's father had been demobbed, and the Griffiths family were actually living 70 miles away from Cottingley in Scarborough at the time. Francis was now 12, and Elsie was 18 years old. Um, But that summer, and armed with these cameras, and and this time an extensive supply of photographic glass negatives, Elsie and Francis were again in the fairy photo business. But this time, it was quite a different affair than before. Men like Edward Gardner, who's pictured here, who's a prominent theosophist and a serious believer in fairy life, um, who's pictured here with Elsie and Francis who are on, on the right of the um, photograph, um, now accompanied them on their expeditions to the back. So there was a weight of expectation on their endeavors. Um, one letter from Elsie to Gardner actually refers to the kind of photograph you want, which implies to me that they were given some kind of instructions as to the kind of photographs that were expected to be made. And it was in these circumstances that three further photographs were produced. Um, on, the, on the left, um, yes. on the left um, Alice and the Leaping Fairy. D, uh, Fairy offering flowers to Iris. And E, which has got the fantastic name of Fairy Sunbath, comma, Elves, comma, etc. <laughs> So perhaps not as many photographs as Gardner and others might have expected, but this is still a a good result, um, and repeated the success of the experiment from earlier on, seeming to confirm the earlier results, that fairies are real, that many fairies live in Yorkshire, and importantly, they can be photographed. So we now come to this, which is a copy of the Strand magazine published in December 1920, specifically page 465. Um, and again, we see the familiar image from before of Francis and her fairies, but now we see it actually in a radically different form from before. So it's set inside a neat border. The image is re- reproduced using the half-tone printing process that allows for a gradient of light and dark in the image, um, as well as relatively inexpensive mass reproduction of photographs for newspapers and magazines. There's much more detail visible in this photograph. Um, the grass is dotted with small flowers. You can see the cascading waterfall behind. You can make out the fairies themselves much more clearly. And we can see their patterned wings, their flowing hair, their arms and legs posed as if dancing. And one of them appears to be blowing a horn. And this is, of course, the moment where we encounter our second Arthur in the story, Arthur Conan Doyle. Unlike the first Arthur, he was a believer in fairies and the supernatural beings, as we'll hear more about later. Um, And it's his text that accompanies the publication of these photographs. This first article, which is called Fairies Photographed, describes how Iris and Alice Carpenter had been able to capture photographs of fairies in an unnamed small village in Yorkshire. And incidentally, it took the Daily Herald less than a week to crack the pseudonyms and be able to track, have a reporter on the ground in Cottingley. Importantly, we're given a chain of, a bit of an indication of the chain of evidence that links the image in front of us from the contact print we saw earlier. So, quoting Gardner, um, the article describes how new prints were made from the original negatives. And these, in turn, were, quote, prepared and intensified so that they would, quote, serve as better printing mediums. The caption itself describes the image as an untouched enlargement from the original negative. So what we are actually looking at here is not really the same photograph at all, but something that's already several generations away from the original negative. Which is important to say, does not necessarily mean that anyone that's involved in this process is necessarily motivated by a desire to deceive people. Most photographs would have required some form of post-production to make them suitable for reproducing this form. Um, And it's wrong to suggest that what we're talking about here is outright manipulation. Um, However, the effect is to effectively create a new image, albeit one that's based on the original source material and negative. And it's this image, in this printed form, that introduced the Cottingley Fairies um, to the world endorsed by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle himself, accompanied, interestingly, by quite a lot of technical data on the camera used, the make of glass negative, the distance and shutter speed, the meteorological conditions, and including a lengthy quasi-testimonial report by Gardner himself, the article very much evokes the mise-en-scene of scientific and legalistic objectivity. The second article, which appeared in the same magazine four months later in 1921, reproduced two more photographs. Um, and, by that, and by the time that Doyle published a full-length book in 1922, the sensation had well and truly taken hold. But the photographic image itself, as distinct from the phenomenon that the Cottingley Fairies had become, continued to circulate, continued to change, continued to kind of take new form. This new object is a mounted print where again we see Francis and her dancing fairies. But unlike the crumpled contact print and the grainy version in the magazine, here we see them almost perfectly. This photographic print is slightly enlarged. It's about 11 by 15 centimeters and is beautifully produced on and mounted on card. The reverse of it um, shows thin strips of black tape used probably to mount the photograph in a frame or more likely an album. And the inscription on the front reads, Alice and the Fairies, Copyright, Photograph Taken July 1917. This version was produced as a set of five photographs, all printed in the same way and all mounted on card. Photographs like this were, we think, produced and sold by the Theosophical Society, generating quite a healthy income as a result. And You'll notice that for the first time, the word copyright had entered into the, the discussions. And so I'm going to jump forward a little bit now. So for 50 years, the Cottingley Fairies did take their place as one of these kind of phenomena like the Loch Ness Monster on the fringes of British culture, um, but not necessarily subject to serious analysis. And this started to change in the 1970s as a series of television programmes, articles and books appeared to revive interest in the phenomena. But this time, there were also decisive interventions from the women themselves, who, from the point of the publication in 1920, um, really don't seem to have a voice in this story very much. Um, and this, which is my final object, is a letter, um, a nine-page letter dated 17th of February 1983, from a then Elsie Hill, then residing in Nottingham, handwritten in blue ink on thin blue writing paper, The writing legible and neat at the start, but by page nine, a little bit less regular. Um, Each single-sided page also neatly numbered in the top right-hand corner to keep track of it. So The recipient of this letter was a man called Geoffrey Crawley, who was then the editor of the British Journal of Photography, a serious man with a serious interest in photographs. Between December 1982 and April 1983, he published a series of articles in the BJP drawing on his correspondence with Elsie and a lot of in-depth technical analysis of the photographic materials that he held in private collections and also in the Brotherton Library at the University of Leeds. In his article, Crawley tries to draw back the curtain of how the images were made on behalf of a photographic community that he feels have failed to engage seriously with the subject. He writes that... We, in photography, can see at a glance that the photographs are fabricated but have done nothing to particularize the reasons logically for the world outside to understand. His articles are a technical tour de force. This just gives you a sense of the kind of the level of detail he goes to with with the cameras and everything else. Um, He details the capability of the cameras. He describes the ways that the images would have been reproduced, retouched, re-enlarged. He concludes that the second set of photographs were achieved potentially using techniques of superimposition, although that's, I think, also been slightly disputed. Um, And he very clearly believes that the final photograph, which is a detail here, um, of the fairy sunbath that Frances herself maintained was real, was very likely an accidental double exposure. Importantly, in the letter, Elsie describes why the women had maintained the secret until then. Not only did the whole thing, in essence, sort of embarrassed them. But also, Elsie writes that she was feeling sad for Conan Doyle. We had read in the newspapers of his getting some jarring comments about his interest in spiritualism and now laughter about his belief in fairies. he had recently lost his son in the war and the poor man was probably trying to comfort himself with unworldly things. And it turns out that the longer it ran, the harder it was to come clean. In the late 1940s, Elsie proposed to Francis that they own up about it, but according to Elsie, um, her daughter Kitty had found out about the fairies and was thrilled pink and really over the moon about it. So for the sake of not embarrassing or humiliating others, including members of their own family, for the sake of not spoiling the children and the magic for their own children, the women continued to keep quiet, perhaps in the hope eventually that it would blow over, um, but eventually their patience ran out and between 1975 and 83 in a series of books and interviews um, they put paid to what Elsie described in this letter as this longest ever practical joke. Their individual motivations to do so are quite complex I think. Both women express themselves as being irritated by the attentions of certain believers. Elsie also describes herself as not wanting to be thought of by her grandchildren as a quote, weirdy grandmother. <laughs> But there's also a sense in this letter that they felt some kind of injustice of the fact that others had profited financially from the whole thing, while they had not. And also, that the opportunity to to make money and take ownership of their final confession had been denied to them by other unscrupulous writers and journalists. So in the end, what might we make of the Cottingley Fairies? Um, So for me as a curator, there's something quite important here about why objects and materials of photography matter. Um, The transmogrification, if you like, of the photographs from traces in chemicals and light on a small glass plate to globally circulated images reminds us that we need to take seriously the technical details of the photographs we see, um, and particularly the images that people ask us to believe are real. We learn things from objects that we can't necessarily learn in other ways. And we must not forget that the camera is just a tool and that photography is a series of instruments and processes which can and will be used by people for a number of different reasons. Um, And finally also, I think this story does tell us a little bit about people involved too, about children and adults and about families. Um, One magazine in 1921, um, an Australian newspaper perhaps got to the heart of the matter when they said, um, for a true explanation of these fairy photographs, what is wanted is not a knowledge of occult phenomena, knowledge of children and that being so we should as I said earlier not judge any of the people in the affair too harshly so I'd like to end with another quote from the ever sensible Jeffrey Crawley of the BJP so for him in the final analysis the Cottingley Fairies was a tale of genuine persons of integrity across a wide band of social stru- structure of 60 years ago or more who by reasons of their human strengths frailties and genuinely held beliefs we were inevitably drawn into a ser- sequence of events whose chain reaction, once set in motion, could not be reversed. Thank you very much.
1: Actually, I actually don't want to start with Conan Doyle. I want to start by asking the audience a question. I realize you're an exceptional audience because you're the 40 in Society. How many people in this room think on balance that it's more likely that there are fairies than that there aren't? Show of hands. Okay. How many people think on balance that it's more likely than not that there's life on other planets? Show of hands. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much for that, and that's the result I always get. So, despite your exceptionality... Um, you just, just to say, they're not
0: necessarily coming in flying saucers.
1: Just- no, I didn't say anything about flying <laughs> sources. I, I said nothing about their ability to visit us, and I'm not interested in that. Um, the thing is that we have exactly the same amount of evidence for both groups. That is absolutely positively none. We have no evidence whatsoever that there's life on other planets and no evidence whatsoever that there are fairies. What we have for both groups, though, is endless fecund stories. The stories about fairies have taken a hit ever since Cottingley. In fact, ever since an effort was made to prove that there are fairies. That kind of almost destroyed the story base that fueled belief in fairies. Though in Elsie and Francis's day, in Conan Doyle's day, that story base was probably in better health than it had ever been before, and I'll talk about that more in a minute. The reason more hands went up when I asked you about life on other planets is not just about probability. Fairies used to feel probable to people, in part because of Francis's fear of the darkened window. There used to be more dark, uncharted spaces on Earth in our everyday lives, even in 1920, than there are now. Now we have Google Earth. Then, huge amounts of nature, including even the bottom of your garden, even the back of a London bus, might be a little-known dark area that you could imaginatively people with whatever seemed to you likely or possible. Now, all we've really done is move those dark spaces out beyond the bounds of our solar system. The reason that we're still willing to believe in the probability of life on other planets is because those stories that now enrich and fuel our imaginations take the form of science fiction movies where Klaatu uh, Klaatu and and his robot friend um, arrive on Earth. We've all seen E.T., we've all seen Star Wars, and we know that there's life in a galaxy far, far away. Our imaginations are primed to accept that likelihood. And the reason I say this to you highly rational people in the face of a very highly rational paper about photography, which I thoroughly enjoyed, is that not all of us, not every single bit of each of us as an individual is rational. A lot of us is something else. A lot of us is to do with story, to do with the stories we know, to do with the number of stories we've heard on particular topics, to do with what those stories assume, and to do, above all, with how those stories can come to mean to us. Quick sort of Wikipedia-sized essay on fairies now. Uh, You do realize that fairies is a very, very bad word to use. It's important to know this. You should never really say fairies. And in some folklore, it takes a year off your life every time you do. Very, very bad news for the discussion later on. People actually refer to them by euphemisms, as if they were a kind of lavatory. So we have the good people, we have the good neighbors, we have the ladies from outside, we have the others, we have the little people. All those kinds of names betoken, not easy acceptance of fairies, but uneasy coexistence with something that true believers take to be deeply, profoundly, and darkly other. It follows, when we note that just about every culture on earth has a belief in beings of roughly this kind, that there's something in human nature that requires us to have this sense of an outside over there, a something or somewhere else which contains life forms like ourselves but also different from ourselves. Life forms that we don't dominate, that we don't fully understand, that we may never set eyes on, but that we believe are nonetheless beside us. And those beliefs have been immensely malleable to the forces of human emotion. If you think of the kind of thing that you as a human being push away from yourself and don't want to admit about yourself, the kinds of feelings that none of us like to have or own, It's those kinds of feelings that tend to dominate what I'm going to loosely call fairy tales. So fairy beliefs are not about, and really distinctly not about, pretty girls in pink dresses. In their folkloric origins, they are far, far darker, and I can't emphasize that enough. There's been a move in recent science fiction and fantasy to write darker fairies. I'm delighted to have had any kind of part in bringing about that sea change. We seem to need our fairies darker these days. But people sometimes still have a sort of image in their heads of something pretty and good. Traditional fairies are not pretty, and nor are they good, nor are they tiny, nor do they resemble insects, and in most folklore they don't fly in the British Isles. They typically manifest as human-sized in British Isles folklore. Small fairies are unusual in the British Isles, and in fact, we owe small fairies to one man, and it's William Shakespeare. He created small fairies that use insects as steeds and make stuff out of moth's wings. That's all Shakespeare in his imagination. Before that, fairies were always full-sized. Also important to know what their origins are. Typically, most modern people will tend to think of fairies as separate species from themselves, like dogs or newts. But actually, a medieval person would not have thought of fairies in those terms. A medieval person would have thought of fairies as a special category of the dead. So no longer human, but once human. Dead people are, um, who die before their allotted time of years become fairies in this mythology. So again, typically, women who die in childbirth, men who die by violence, but again typically in battle, resonates nicely with what you were saying, and children who die in the first years of childhood, but particularly children who die before they can be christened or named. So they're sort of not owned or incorporated into human society. All these categories of dead beings become fairies. And that is what fairies are. So if people appear in ballads or in tales and they say, would you like to come to fairyland? Would you like to be a fairy? Would you like to come away with me? Would you like to leave? Would you like to go? They are typically inviting you not just to another world, but to a world that for most people is the world after death. Okay and that the reason we know this fascinating fact do you know what our best source for fairy beliefs in earlier periods is it's not folklorists work because folklorists really don't start working on this till Elizabethan times and then they go about it very oddly because they're all men of religion it's witchcraft trials our best source of fairy beliefs is the confessions of women and men accused of witchcraft because those women and men are very often what was called cunning folk. Not sure if this is a familiar term, but these are people who believe themselves to have healing abilities, abilities of fortune telling and discernment on a fairly limited domestic or local scale. And they often, when dealing with their clients, attribute those magical capabilities to their contact with fairies. So when they're arrested and accused of witchcraft, one of the things they very often say in response to that is that their power comes from fairies. And they often say it in a very roundabout way because you'll remember what I just told you about why you don't want to say the word fairy. So they don't just say to their interrogator, and you know what, I met a fairy and she gave me this magic wand and it was all really straightforward. It's not like that. They say it in a really elliptical fashion that's hard to fathom and discern. But we can see a very clear pattern in which you have two kinds of trial evidence, really. One kind is witches who are accused of having a familiar animal. And typically, one of the things witches do with their familiar animals is they leave milk out of it, out for it, out for the familiar. Or they feed the familiar milk from their own bodies. This is really interesting because one of the longest and strongest folkloric beliefs is the idea that you must leave milk out for the fairies. And this particularly pertains to the the belief in the household fairy, the brownie or hob. Um, You have to leave milk out. Don't dare to leave skim milk out or the brownie or hob will curse you. So any attempts at government cutbacks are a no. The brownie or hob will not tolerate a 1% pay rise ceiling. The brownie or hob has ideas, and those ideas are very firmly set in place. So when witches say in witch trials, I left out milk for my familiar, the clerk of the court is writing down the word familiar, because he's assimilating whatever word they're actually using to a vocabulary of demonology. But the witches are almost certainly referring to a set of fairy beliefs, where the fairies are scary, dangerous beings that require constant appeasement with little gifts. Otherwise, best case scenario, they'll wreck your house like poltergeists and make you unprosperous. Worst case scenario, you'll find that your family start dying. So that's the basic underlying idea of fairies. They're not good and cute. Put aside any idea of the fairy godmother in Cinderella, a la Disney. These guys are a form of restless dead. Most cultures have a form of restless dead, and our kind is the kind that we call fairies. Now, I'm going to introduce you very quickly to one of the witches that's our source for these beliefs, and this is a witch called Isabel Gaudi, um, who actually enumerated hilariously exactly which fairies she had met. That is, she said their names, she told the court all about the kind of fairy they were, whether they were a jokey kind of fairy or a poisonous and scary kind of fairy. She explained which ones she'd had sex with and which ones had given her children. That's all quite common in witch trials. The only thing that's unusual about Isabel's confession is that she enumerates so many of them. So she lists 12 of them by name. And at the end of the list of 12, with all the details of her sex life or not with them, the clerk just writes etc. You can see the clerk was like, man, this is really enough. Um, and there's one other, so it's like the et cetera that you spoke about in, in your paper. Yeah. Um, the very moment where we want to know more, we're not kind of told more. It's as if fairies actually exist in the etc. in the et cetera's of other people, that the area that we don't want to explain or ponder or put pressure on. Um, but I also just wanted to mention that Isabel Gowdy volunteered her confession that she wasn't confessing because she was being interrogated or tortured. She actually voluntarily came forward to tell the legal system all about this. Nobody persecuted her. Nobody menaced or threatened her. She wanted to do all this talking about fairies. She wanted to be heard. And to us, that's super weird because she probably knew she's clearly very smart, that the likely punishment was death. We don't actually know whether she was executed. We do know she was convicted. Um, And it's very striking that she would do that, that somebody would come forward voluntarily, put their own head on the chopping block. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because I think there's an interesting comparison to be made with the Cottingley girls. Because it seems to me that one of the things we're seeing in the Cottingley photos is, is it a hoax or is it real? Are there fairies or aren't there? Is this definitive proof of fairies or is it total proof that they're rubbish? We tend to think that if something is fake, it means that it's always fake. You know, we tend to sort of make that extrapolation. Um, and actually, I want to say that I think that's totally the wrong question to ask about the Cottingley photos. I think the Cottingley photos, like Isabel Gowdy's confession, are an act of fervent self-expression that's very much indebted to art of the period, to photography of the period, and to folklore of the period. And I think the reason Conan Doyle was initially so fascinated and compelled was not just his spiritualist ancestry, but his specific paternal ancestry. And that's why I have this picture here for you. Now this uh, drawing was actually by Conan Doyle's father, Charles Altamont Doyle. And as you can see, it's it's a fairy picture. And it's a fairy picture of a young, couple, a young loving couple, plainly dressed in gear of the past, being attended by trooping fairies. Now, the thing to know about Conan Doyle's father is that he died in a lunatic asylum. Conan Doyle therefore probably correlated his fairy pictures with delusion, with craziness. And he had some reason to do that because the other very famous 19th century fairy painter was this guy, Richard Dadd. Um, This is a painting, one of my favorite Victorian fairy paintings. It's called The Fairy Fellas' Master Stroke. It's immensely strange and very beautiful. And it illustrates the fact that the Victorians got the dark side of fairies. This is a dark, nasty image of fairies. And with the graying, there is a sort of sepulchral quality as well. And dad also went mad and was put in an asylum. Um, and then, as well, as if that's not enough, Arthur Conan Doyle's uncle, Richard Doyle, also did fairy paintings, and also was eventually incarcerated in lunatic asylum. So, And this is a, a rather different kind of painting, this larger one, to the, um, the one that we saw from Conan Doyle's father. You can see that, he, um, that these uh, fairies are rather jolly and playful. But the smaller one, which I couldn't get any larger, despite my daughter's efforts, again partakes of something of that bleakness, that um, a sense of outsideness that we might associate with older fairy beliefs. Because you can see that in it, the fairies are inhabiting a very barren kind of landscape, a very Macbeth on the Heath kind of space. So I suspect that Conan Doyle correlated fairies with insanity and delusion. And here we have a final Victorian fairy painter, probably my favorite of the lot. This is John Anster Fitzgerald, and you can see that in this painting, there's a young girl lying on the bed, um, and all around her are fairy figures, including some fairies floating in the air. So in this painting, straightforwardly, the simple interpretation is it's a riff on Shakespeare. It's portraying fairies as the bringers of dreams, rather like Queen Mab in Romeo and Juliet. But at the same time, there's something very pale and wan about the girl's face. She doesn't actually look healthy and well. It doesn't look like a good, healthy kind of sleep. And there's something in the fairy figures that's malign and weird. Um, They're not pretty fairies like the Princess Mary figures that Elsie and Frances used. They're much odder, more gnome-like figures of deformity and sickness. They're more nightmarish, in other words. And I think if we look at this girl on this bed, we can see, despite the variance in the fairies, some affinity with the Cottingley photographs. Because here is a girl experiencing fairies, as it were, both inside and outside her own head, surrounded by them, enveloped in them, enfolded by them. And yet it's not a pretty image. It's an image that we could even perceive as objectifying in that it exposes this sleeping girl, this uncomfortably ill-looking sleeping girl to our gaze. If we then turn straight to the Cottingley photos after that, I want to suggest that one of the ways we could interpret them is as that sleeping girl, that sleeping girl that we just looked at, that sleeping girl, saying, what if, as well as being the object of the gaze, I am also the one doing the looking? That's what the Cottingley photographs achieve because they're authored by the same women, the same female figures that participate in them. So rather than the authorship being contingent on John Anster Fitzgerald or somebody of that kind, Elsie particularly, and Francis a little bit, are saying, no, we are the authors of our own mythology which suggests to me, and this is really my big idea, that the Cottingley photos shouldn't be considered just because Conan Doyle considered them a factual record at last, but should rather be considered one of the whole series of works of fairy art that I've been showing you. And should be seen as participating in a dialogue with those works of fairy art and also with the tradition of photography in the period. It goes without saying that that's not what Conan Doyle wanted. What Conan Doyle wanted, for that matter, what Edward Gardner wanted, but particularly Conan Doyle for the reason that I gave you connected with his ancestry and the relation between fairies and madness and delusion. What he wanted was proof, definitive, unarguable proof that fairies were real. The fact that both he and Gardner then promptly assimilated fairies to a body of mythology to which fairy beliefs are, in fact, entirely alien, didn't worry him at all. There is absolutely no way that Gardner's idea of fairy beliefs has anything at all to do with fairies in English folklore. It doesn't even have anything to do with fairies in English literature. Um, it, it's a wish to see fairies as simply a, new, a, a visible spirit. Um, Conan Doyle, as a spiritualist, however, knew all about the struggle to record spiritualist photography, the the struggle to record spiritualist experiences in photography. A big part of spiritualism in the late 19th century, which he got into way before his son died in World War I, whatever you've heard, he'd been into spiritualism for 20 years before his son died. A big part of it was people standing around with cameras trying to capture the appearance of ectoplasm, trying to capture ectoplasm coming out of the medium's mouth and forming an image. Interestingly, a lot of those photographs, actually spiritualist photographs, which were also relentlessly exposed as fakes in much the same kind of way as eventually the Cottingley photos were exposed as fakes. Um, A lot of those photographs concerned images of young girls. A lot of mediums were young girls. Conan Doyle believed that one of the two girls at Cottingley was probably mediumistic, which was meant to be this kind of inborn natural talent. Um, One of the most famous spirit guides of the period was Katie King, who was so famous as a spirit guide that she was actually used by mediums on both sides of the Atlantic almost simultaneously. And she was a little girl with long loose hair, somewhat like Francis's in that picture. Um, So, I think when Conan Doyle saw these images, he thought, phew, fairies not madness, and also, yay, proof of mediumistic abilities in young girls. But I think it was the former that was actually concealed by him quite consciously under the more respectable cloak of the latter. So my final thought is really just to draw your attention to the fact that while the photographs look ridiculously fake to us, I assume they look ridiculously fake to everyone in the room. I mean, uh, okay, but if anyone wants to defend their realism, you do go right ahead. My sense is that the reason that, I'm just gonna take that one there with Francis and the little fairy, which looks more fake even than the other one. Um, I think the reason they look fake to us is the kind of fairy they contain. It's a kind of fairy that we are very used to seeing in things that we are conscious are fake. Thinking here of the Disney Tinkerbell figure that appears and strikes a sort of bell before every movie. Now, on stage in Elsie's time, Tinkerbell wasn't even a projected image. She was just a moving light. That's all she was but it's interesting for a photographer to think that a fairy can best be represented by a moving light. So Barry in staging Peter Pan, which is a play that's hyper conscious of the death related issues around fairies and the fact that fairies are a kind of a a permanence that that reeks of the tomb um, and that reeks of a, 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 a scary longing for mortal flesh because it's warm and fresh um, because it can be used by the fairy community without any ethical restraint. Um, it's interesting that it's conveyed by light. And we sort of accept that as stagecraft. Whereas when it's naturalized as a photograph, we immediately start demanding that it have a greater level of reality. If we don't do that though, if we think of LC as crafting f- photographs of fairies, from cutouts from a book and hat pins, I think what we're looking at is a work of art that's analogous in the modern world to fan fiction and cosplay and other unauthorized riffs on high culture by people who don't have access to its mainsprings. I think we're looking at a girl making a work of art that's very knowledgeable about and sophisticated in its knowledge of Victorian mythic photography of the kind that Julia Cameron, Julia Margaret Cameron produced. A kind of knowledge that photography can be used to create special effects. Um, The very first moving images were the Phantasmagoria in the catacombs in Paris during the French Revolution. The the silent films that were first shown widely were Georges Melies' fantastical silent films rather than realist silent films. In other words, film was initially quite legitimately correlated with creating a sense of belief in an unseen world that you hoped was there and that you felt might be all around you. Alongside that and layered on top of it was the further wish by the Theosophical Society, by the Spiritualist Society to use film in exactly the opposite way. To use film as though it was in uncontestable proof that you'd really seen something and that something was really there. But I think we can love these photos much more if we see them as Elsie's creative response, not only to hundreds of years of fairy belief, not only to being a citizen of empire, as you were saying, but also I think really importantly to her wish to be a female artist. We know that she got very bored with working in the photography lab that she worked in in Bradford because it was all routine tasks and we know that that creativity was thwarted by the kind of career opportunities she was offered. Conan Doyle didn't have to suffer any thwarting like that. He could write as many books as he liked and have them published. But for Elsie, photography was a hope and it was an outlet. I don't think that by the time she wrote those later letters that she wanted to talk about that very much. But I think that shyly within the Cottingley photos, is the hope of creating a genuinely subversive and in its own way very radical work of art that upset the apple cart, that overturned what people thought her job, her role, and her life should be, living in the kind of house that she lived in. To declare oneself an artist was impossible in her life situation, but to produce a work of art was highly possible, and this she did. Thank you. So. He might he might be willing to be interrogated for longer and he might have lots of fairy Sorry, stories. Might be We've got minutes of, yeah. the, of Diane. Um, so
0: questions or comments, let's make them brief and concise and good. Okay. This is a microphone, you can talk into it. And you can catch it. Awesome. Um yeah, I had a question for Michael. And um when I visited the um, National Media Museum as it was about five years ago, um I happened to see a, um, a local news report where one of the women was being interrogated by a local news reporter calling her a liar. And I was hoping you might have shown it. I wondered if you are aware of it. It's in, in your collection. A news report from, from, from Nationwide or something, from the late 70s. So quite a young man um, berating uh, one of the elderly women, possibly Elsie. Um, so is this the interview with Austin Mitchell? Possibly, I'm not sure who yeah. it was by. It was by. It was. I was just, I just happened to be visiting, and I was, and yeah. just. I just. It was on a reel of. Uh, they, a, they did a, a number of interviews, I think, mm. in, the, in the 1970s mm. and 80s, yeah. um, and, um, and tried to find ways. I think of trying to talk about it. Um yeah. but I don't think they were always necessarily well served by people at that time when they were interviewers or people who were. Um, um, writing things about at the same kind of time too, which I think is, is quite an unfortunate, sort of end of the end of the whole period. But I, I don't. I'm sorry, I don't know the one you're Not specifically. Okay. Yeah. Any questions before? Uh, any questions for Diane before she needs to head off? Yes, that you think I, of? I've
1: got to look after my new French bulldog puppy. So, oh, she's, so there you go. You can't be grateful for that. It, yeah, it's a kind of sappy British reason to have to leave an event. <laughs> but my husband and daughter are managing her at the moment. She's apparently entered into a war with a Lancashire healer. Okay. I was wondering, this is a very strange thing. Um, I was wondering
0: about something you said about um, after Francis came to live with Elsie, them both going and playing down by the bank. So it occurs to me that as a 15 year old young woman with an income and a job, um, I was sort of wondering whether play would be a bit odd for her, whether she was sort of, to a certain extent, humoring little one.
1: I think that might well be true. I think that we often find that stories about fairies are handed on from an older woman to a younger one is a very common pattern. Um, And games about fairies, similarly often handed down through generations. So I think we can definitely see that happening. But I would also add that girls grew up a lot more slowly in that period mm. than they do nowadays. Mm. Um, I mean, 15 was really still a child. Mm. Um, in the immediately post-World War I era in a way that it isn't quite now. I mean, legally it still is, but our laws haven't quite caught up with our culture. I think it's quite likely that some 15-year-olds would still have seen themselves as children, and certainly Elsie seems willing to depict herself on the same terms as Frances in the photos. So, yeah, I see your point, but I suspect that it's us. If you read old-fashioned school stories, they're all about girls in high school who apparently have no interest whatsoever in sex, boys, drugs, rock and roll, anything. And I think that might be part of the culture that, that these photographs are coming from. They're certainly part of Conan Doyle's fantasy about where these photographs are coming from.
0: Although I think um, if you look at the, um, the photograph that I showed of um, Elsie and Francis in 1920 with Edward Gardner, um, you actually see this kind of remarkable difference between the way that kind of Elsie is dressed and showing herself in that photograph than she poses as part of the photographs so that she made that that kind of summer. So I think by 1920 um, things were probably a little bit different.
1: And there, there was clearly a change mm. even from the early to the later photographs in terms of how she saw the world and how she saw herself. That would be a great subject if anyone fancies writing a play or novel. It's sort of telling Elsie's story and had the story of her coming to an adult realisation of where she was and what things were.
2: Hi. Um, the age thing is something that I'm interested <coughs> in as well. Um, the first photograph you had up for Michael's talk, you see I have a problem with the dating of the photos and I've I've done a thing in the 14 this month's 14 times about it. I don't see much difference in the pictures of Frances when she was nine or ten. And then when she was 12 or 13 and that's a huge developmental leap Mm. surely even if people didn't grow that fast Mm. and i have a theory now that actually the pictures were possibly not taken in 1917 i can't prove it Mm. but i found pictures i mean they didn't come to light till 1919 Mm. and i find it hard to believe they were just shoved in a drawer for two years that, that's my, my problem, and I've, I've uncovered these two other photographs that were definitely published in 1918. At mm. least one of them was. One's dated 1918. It's in the Brotherton collection. The second one was in a newspaper called The Sphere in April 1918, and I'm just wondering if, if the Cottingley actually were f- copies. They saw it mm. and thought, well, we can do better than that. And well. if if if. They were lying about the dates that means it's not just the girls then who were fibbing it was arthur and polly wright Mm. and and yeah so i just think it might be a wider conspiracy than we think Mm.
1: the
0: chain (laughs) chain of evidence is frustratingly elusive to, to to pin down um I I think from 1920 as well, there would have been a great many more photographic... We're told they were supplied with lots and lots of negatives, to kind of, Mm. and I don't know what happened to all of those kind of negatives either. And and the Mm. other point I
2: wanted to make was poor old Conan Daw never saw the original negative. He only ever saw the enhanced ones, Mm. which is really sad. I was just going to say, I wonder if one of the reasons that um, the photos were believed back then
1: was just simply people thought the camera did not lie. It was a... Um, and it was a sort of trope of the age. And it also makes me wonder, um, of some of the images we, we see um, today in news and media that we have no real idea how they're produced, um, you know, uh, how, how accurate, how realistic, how true are they?
2: No.
1: To um, I would actually contest that slightly okay. um, because in fact there was a lot of fantastical film and photography around before and around the Cottingley moment. I spoke about Georges Méliès films, um, I spoke about Julia Margaret Cameron's photographs. Um, those are both texts that insist that film can show the non-real rather than showing the real. I don't think it is the case that people definitely thought that the camera could not lie. Plus, there was a scandal every week in popular newspapers about spiritualist photographs being exposed as fakes. So, I think it's highly unlikely that people would have just responded credulously to the Cottingley photographs as inevitably true. I think they could perfectly well have seen them as, as fake, just as we might respond to them today by saying, well, my kids would definitely respond by saying, photoshopped.
0: I think it's interesting because I've been doing quite a lot of. Um radio interviews and media things around this kind of anniversary Um, and a lot of people are saying to me well of course these look obviously fake to us today but in the past a lot of people so there's this real desire to ascribe to people living in the past a kind of credulity that we are so much more sophisticated at that time so I think that is kind of um, definitely sort of something to be slightly cautious of people were always I think very conscious that photography is this sophisticated thing which kind of can lie very easily, as well as kind of um, sort of having this kind of uh, supposed kind of objectivity to it as well.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, just as we live in a world today where um, most adolescents have extensive experience of taking photographs, with it, you know, the very frictionless photographs of the camera, but they also edit them constantly in order to make their selfies look good. I've got a 17-year-old daughter. Um, and believe me, I know. And you know, she, won't, she won't, wouldn't dream of posting something on Instagram until she's worked on it for half an hour. So I, I think that makes them more rather than less alert to the possibilities of the camera as a medium of expression. And that would definitely go for Elsie as well. The naive one is actually, if there is a naive one in the story, it's Conan Doyle. And it, it's an illustration of the predisposition to believe and the wish to believe.
0: Yes, just something to point out. Uh, The um, uh, BBC News had some footage of the the actual garden this morning, Mm -hmm. Um, so you can get a sense of scale if you look it up on iPlayer. Um, But they also had, I I think it must be Kitty on, who uh, still claims that the last photograph, the the one in which the girls don't appear, is genuine. Yeah. And I just wondered how much, how much have they actually (laughs) oscillated? Because I think you were saying. It's very difficult to get rid of these things once they get a life of their own. How, how much has it sort of oscillated around? How, uh, how much effort did they put into trying to dissuade people that they were they were real? Well, Francis always claimed that the fifth one was was real, um, and always claimed that there were yes. sort of the other photographs were staged, but they were staging something that was was real that they had kind of actually kind of seen. So they were reenacting um, things. Um, the last photograph is. Markedly different from mm-hmm. the others that are, that are published. There's, there isn't. Um, neither of the, the young women are actually in the photograph. It is from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. It has different qualities to it. Yeah, it's um, got a different aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's,
0: it's, it's, it's very different, and I think that's why um, Jeffrey. Crawley, yeah. This, this is why the kind of it's an accidental kind of double mm-hmm. exposure because it looks very much like the kind of. There may have been many more of them from the summer of 1920 as well, which looked a little bit like that because the, the experiment hadn't quite worked out properly. Uh, what we don't really know is why that one ended up kind of entering, being published, and entering into the kind of the, the canon of the the, the fairy photographs, um, rather than being kind of discarded as being sort of something that's not quite good enough to kind of prove um, anything. Um, this is why it's kind of frus- frustrating because there isn't the the evidence and the kind of the information there to be able to track that through so all we have is kind of speculation really yeah okay before david asks a question has anybody
1: else got a question before diane needs to head off the book that you showed uh the fairy pictures were cut out of how widely distributed was that you know how common was the book and how long was it before somebody connected the two and just said, well, hang on a minute, that's yeah. from there. Yeah, I mean, it was quite widely distributed. And plus, they didn't actually cut the pictures out. No. They traced them um, and made copies of them. This was a thing that, again, was a big part of children's world in the past. Um, Even in my own childhood, you used to trace illustrations on thin paper and then transfer that image to thicker paper and cut it out to make something. And it's well within the skill set of the age group that they were in. It's interesting that nobody really spotted it. I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that makes them look fake to us is that they look so much like a book illustration. Um, So rather than that affirming them, and if we compare them with the films we just saw, which are insisting on an otherworldly strangeness and oddity that plenty derives from Michael Drayton, but I shan't digress. Um, it, it's, it's, it's obvious that the photographs, the Cottingley photographs, are presenting a thoroughly almost, I want to say banal idea of fairies based on commonplace book illustrations. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I suspect that that for some people was a reason to believe in them rather than the opposite.
0: I mean, these, um, I wouldn't have been able to buy that first edition for 16 quid if there weren't lots of them out there for people to kind of, um, and Mm. it's referred to quite, it's a a beautiful, it's a very beautiful book and it has lots of very beautiful kind of illustrations in there, but it's also something that was knocked out relatively quickly, so it's not as if people are not drawing already in their contributions to this book on things they've done elsewhere or yeah. things that are kind of um, very familiar from elsewhere. So there's not a lot of really original stuff in there. Yeah,
1: yeah quite. Yeah, it was more like an annual. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this is another lost bit of childhood culture that um, big picture annuals used to be published at Christmas um, that typically would bring together material from a magazine. So you'd have, you know, the Bunty annual the school friend annual or, or whatever. And Princess Mary's gift book was like an early version of that kind of work. So yeah, widely distributed and not particularly elite. Yes, yeah, it was the 80s. Yeah, it was. It wasn't until after Elsie came out, mm-hmm. and I think she may have actually said herself what the source was and made it easy for everyone, if I recall correctly. Yes, that's right. Yeah. 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 So no one tweaked. No. Yeah. Um, Plagiarism, hard to spot. Number <laughs> mm.
0: well, Thank you very much, Michael and Diane. That was a thank brilliant you. evening. Thank you.